Father, we gather this morning not out of ritual, not out of religious duty, not out of an expectation that we can just check something off of a box and move on to what's next. We gather expectantly. We gather together because we recognize that we're better together. We gather together because you somehow, in a very intimate way, reveal yourself through corporate worship. We gather because we need to reset from the significant things that we're all confronting throughout the week and gather once again to reorient our minds and our hearts collectively. Father, we gather because we recognize that you are not going to leave us where you, we are and yet you're, and you're moving us in a new direction and you're inviting us to respond to that prodding, to, side, to respond to that movement. And God, we want to have the courage. We need the community around us to be able to help us discern where you're leading and also to actually do it. God, we're gathered because we know that as we wrestle with all of the things that we're confronted with, we need truth. We are hungry for truth, not just opinion, not just a talking head, not just a pundit or a politician throwing out very simple answers to very complex questions. But we're seeking the truth that you provide for us, the, the truth that you've revealed to us in your word and through the power of your spirit. So we ask that you'd meet us in this place as we anticipate what you're going to reveal. And may you take the, the limited offering that I will bring today and take it to a place that I could never have the power to do it on my own. That you would simply allow it to through the power of your spirit, resonate deeply in the hearts and lives of us as we gather. It is in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. As we wrap up this series on emotions, there's this unique, I think very significant, life-altering truth, a connection that is made in a very interesting part of Scripture and, and it's almost a, 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 a truth that we can kind of read and we can just kind of keep moving through because of where it's located in the text. And yet I think it offers us an incredible connection that actually could be paradigm shifting for many of us. There's a moment in the, the life of Israel, and we're going to study this entire book ne over the next several weeks together, uh, but it's in the book of Nehemiah. And, and as, as the people gather having just completed the rebuilding of the wall, after all of the turmoil and all of the adversity, they're gathered, and Ezra begins to read the law of God. And as the people hear the law, and as they hear it explained to them, there's deep conviction that comes over them because they recognize that, man, we have gotten this so wrong. We have lost our way, and there's this deep conviction that they experience, and they begin to weep. Which, to be honest with you, is a proper response. Grieving, mourning is a proper response to recognizing how far I've fallen from where God is and what he's called me to. It's a good, it's the right response. 
And yet what the people are told as they begin to weep is they're told to stop grieving. They're told to stop grieving. Stop, stop grieving. And then we see this statement made. Stop grieving for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Stop grieving because the joy of, your, of the Lord is your strength. Stop doing what is the natural right response to what's going on because what's coming next and what you're going to need on the, on, on the horizon of what you're gonna, about to experience, you're going to need strength for it. And the only way you're going to have that strength is if you find joy in the Lord. I will be completely transparent. 25 and a half plus years of pastoral ministry. As you could imagine, any of us who are parents, who are married, who are just navigating the realities of life, but for me personally, this singular truth has the power to completely reset the conversation for me. Because there are so many times when I literally feel like I have no more strength where I am completely depleted, I'm frustrated, I begin to get a little bit kind of cynical and jaded. You start to feel like, I just don't want to keep going. And for some of us, it's because of significant losses. For some of us, it's just the grind of life that we're going through. For some of us, it's just ongoing conflict that we have in pe with people. But the reality is that so many of us have a limited amount of emotional, psychological, and maybe even physical strength. And this singular principle has the power to reset the conversation because so often what I've discovered is that this is true. When I have so little strength, what I also recognize is I don't have any joy. I've lost my joy. I'm in a depleted state physically, physiologically, emotionally, psychologically, whatever it is, but I, and spiritually, but I'm also lost any sense of joy and the things that I'm doing. And so I'm just gonna kind of start us here and then we'll get into this. So here's what I want us to hear as we get into this. Sometimes joy comes naturally. Meaning sometimes just good things are happening. You experience great connections with your kids. Uh, marriage is going well. You've got the promotion you were looking for. Sometimes joy itself and the experience of joy just comes naturally because of life. Other times, it's an unnatural choice in adverse circumstances. Meaning other times I literally have to choose it because everything going on around me tells me I have no reason to be joyful. It's kind of funny. It's, it's, there's things in scripture that are just so interestingly threaded through. And one of them is that Jesus over and over and over again tells the people that he's, that are, that he's working with to be without fear, to not fear. And so often he tells them to not fear in the face of things they have every reason to be afraid of. The disciples are out in a boat in the middle of a storm. Don't be afraid. Jesus is telling them, I'm going to go away, and I'm about to leave you, but don't be afraid. No, Jesus, if you're leaving us, we're terrified. And yet Jesus would over and over again say, don't be afraid, in the face of things they had every reason to be afraid of. And the truth is this, that there are times where we have to choose joy in the face of things that, from a human perspective, there's no reason to be joyful in the face of what you're dealing with. And some of us, you're facing that right now. Some of you are literally dealing with stuff right now. You're going, Nate, there is nothing for me to be joyful about. And I'm going, yep. And yet you're supposed to still choose joy because it's the unnatural response. We'll get back to that. 
But I think there's also a third way in which joy is experienced, and that is that what I think is going on in this passage. It's still at other times, it's a supernatural gift offered to us to get us through. And if any of you have dealt with severely difficult adversity, financial, relational, the loss of a loved one, whatever it is, all of you who have gotten through it can attest to the fact that there is a supernatural level of joy that you were given that transcends any human comprehension. And that God gave you that joy in the midst of it to get you through it because if he didn't give it to you, you'd be curled up in a ball crying in a fetal position never to recover. That's the reality of what God is doing in the midst of this when it comes to the conversation around joy. And so we're kind of working through this series and we're going to wrap it up today. It's all the feels. And Ben and I spent a lot of time talking through what emotions do we want to cover, right? Because there's a whole bunch of emotions. There's more than just five or six. Some of us think that it's limited to five or six. There's lots of different emotions. And we wrestled through this and I had a couple other ideas for another difficult emotion today. And Ben and I kind of went back and forth and Ben said, Nate, I just, I feel like God wants us to end this on a positive note. Like, all right, let's do it. So I get to end with joy. I get to end with, I think, one of the more counterintuitive emotions, but also one of the best ones that we can experience. Joy, it's a simple, right? So it's a settled state of contentment, confidence, and hope. It's a feeling of great pleasure or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying that we've experienced. But let me, let me start us here, right? Here, as we get into joy, let me start here. I think we have a complicated relationship with joy. In fact, in fact, I would say, like, there's a lot of different emotions where it's like, if you were to put it on, on social media, you'd be like, yep, I'm married to that emotion because I deal with it every day. Some of us, I'm dating this emotion, right? Some of us date jealousy. Some of us are married to anxiety. This one, I would say, the relationship status should be, it's complicated. Because I think we do have a complicated relationship with joy. Uh, here's the first one. We all, all deal with this. We all suffer from something called a negativity bias which means our brains respond two and a half times to the intent, intensely to joyful experiences versus negative experiences. It's two and a half times more impacted by negative experiences than it is by joyful experiences. Meaning, you are 250% more responsive to negative things that happen to you than joyful things that happen to you. So if you go through and you have, you put out a social media thing and you have 15 awesome responses and you get one person that goes, what are you talking about? Or starts to criticize you, you're going to obsess about that one criticism. Academically, we've all done this. You get four A's and you get one A minus. You're obsessing about that A minus. Some of you have cried about that A minus. We are so much more impacted by negative things than we are by positive experiences in our lives. We all suffer from a negative advice. The number two is, some of us, we feel guilty when we have joy. As though somehow the things that I've been through, I shouldn't have the right to have joy. Or the other people around me don't experience joy, so I feel bad when I experience joy. So we have guilt issues, we have negativity bias. Some of us have been raised in a culture where literally the belief is God doesn't care about our happiness or our joy. He just cares about our holiness. And so I shouldn't focus on joy because having joy is irrelevant as though somehow happiness and holiness are somehow in competition with each other. When the truth is, if you understand both, you actually understand they're completely 
connected and interdependent on each other. And then it's interesting, there's this social, social science piece to this that people have talked about when it's says that joy is actually the most vulnerable emotion because they say that most of us don't really experience true joy. We experience foreboding joy. Meaning joy is the most vulnerable emotion because when we experience it, we're often starting to dress rehearse tragedy. We're starting to envision what's going to happen. When is the other shoe going to drop? If I feel this good, it's only a matter of time before I feel crappy again. And so we have a hard time exhaling in the face of joy because we're just waiting for it to be taken away. Just me. Just me. So we've got this complicated relationship with joy. And then I think there's this other thing where we have, we have this inability to experience joy sometimes because we put all kinds of weird qualifiers around it, right? I'll be happy when I have the things that I've always been pursuing. I'll find joy when I finally have this person in my life, in my arms, or maybe even in my bed. I'll be happy to enjoy life once this trouble finally goes away. I'll rejoice when I achieve the goal or realize my dream, but until then, I don't even know how to experience joy. I love this quote by theologian Karl Barth. He says this, It's astonishing how many references there are in the Old and New Testament to delight, joy, bliss, exaltation, merrymaking, and rejoicing, and how emphatically these are demanded by the book of Psalms and to the epistle of Philippians. Meaning, when we think about God, so many of us think about God and ultimately present a God who's not interested in joy when the reality is God has supernaturally given us joy. He offers us joy in the face of whatever the circumstances and he is a joyful God that we are very much, it's been said well, that we are literally the manifestation of the overflowing joy that God experienced in the Trinity, which is why he created humanity in the first place. That's the reality of our God. I love C.S. Lewis on this. He says, joy is the serious business of heaven. What's God most interested in? Joy. And us experiencing joy. But the other part of joy is it's also incredibly counterintuitive. And throughout scripture, we see this counterintuitive, almost seemingly counterproductive framework for joy. Just a couple of passages. So Luke 6, Jesus is teaching. It says this, blessed are you when people hate you. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven. You should be grateful and rejoice when people hate you. Now, if you understand the context, he's not talking about because you were an idiot and people hate you for being an idiot. It's because you're choosing to love people well or you're choosing to walk in truth and yet you get resistance to that. Find joy in the midst of that. First Thessalonians 1, Paul says it this way, you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In the face of most affliction, you experienced joy. Paul, that's not how it works. No, that's exactly how it works because that's how this gospel shapes joy. Second Corinthians 7, I am greatly encouraged in all of our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. Paul, that's a stupid comment. In the face of my struggles, I'm greatly encouraged. In the face of my troubles, my joy knows no bounds. I have limitless joy in the face of the opposition that I'm dealing with. Paul, are you kidding me? And then James 1, we're familiar with this one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials in many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
But there's something about knowing that God is not going to waste it and that God is working in the midst of it and that he's transforming me through it that allows me to experience joy even in the midst of incredibly difficult, challenging, frustrating, unjust stuff. Joy is counterproductive. Or excuse me, counterintuitive. But it's also the reality of the gospel shaping it. And I'll be honest with you, and this is, I, I just, I'm going to take a moment here. I think many of us don't have a category for this. I think many of us don't have a category for experiencing joy in the face of opposition. Our culture doesn't have a category for this. Anger, animosity, pettiness, spitefulness, hurt, triggering. Whatever you come up with, the the culture says in the face of this stuff, Joy is not possible, and it's your fault that I'm not experiencing joy, so you need to change so I can experience joy. That's our culture. If you're not treating me fairly, if you're not treating me justly, if you're saying or doing things, and you're doing that, you're taking away my joy, and it's your job to change so that I can get my joy back. And if you don't do that, that's unjust. And the gospel shapes joy a very different way. And I want to lovingly encourage this. If you don't have a category for joy in the face of challenges and opposition, I'm asking this simple question. Do you understand what the joy of the Lord is? Have you ever actually said yes to Jesus? Have you ever invited Jesus into this conversation? Because many of us are doing things in a religious way and showing up for religious activities, but we don't really understand joy in the face of difficulty because we don't have a category for that because we don't actually experience the reality of Jesus for who he is and what he's done for us. And I'm pleading with you, if you don't have a category for this or you feel like I am just speaking pie-in-the-sky the pie type stuff, I want that conversation with you soon. I want that conversation with you soon. Because there is a joy available to us that the deepest grief or the saddest, the sadness, the deepest grief or sadness cannot quench. No circumstance nor person has have the power to strip away the joy that God offers. There's a joy that is available to us that nothing can take away from us. That we have the power to experience only because of who God is and what he has done and what he offers to us. Think about it from the fruit of the Spirit perspective. Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Joy is defined as a fruit of the Spirit, meaning when I'm walking in obedience and I'm actually living out God's design and desire for my life, joy is often the byproduct of that. Deep, lasting joy is a fruit of the Spirit that comes as a byproduct of faithful obedience and the ongoing sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's how joy is experienced. And for many of us, we're not experiencing it and we can't figure out why and it's because we're not allowing the Spirit of God to form and shape our worldview, to empower us in the face of incredible challenges and we're walking in direct defiance to the things he has called us to. Keller says it this way. He says, when we dig deep enough, we discover that the sin under all other sins is a lack of joy in Christ. Oh. Meaning that the reason why I commit sins or I don't do the things that I'm supposed to do is because ultimately I don't believe that God has my best interest at heart and that I'm going to find my greatest joy by operating in the space that he has called me into. 
man, there's so much in that that we got to wrestle with. Paul wrote an entire book from prison talking about finding elusive joy. We did a series on this several years ago called The Elusive Alternative, where Paul in Philippians lays out, here's how you experience what is so elusive in the face of opposition, you actually have the power to experience joy. And he says it this way in chapter one, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. I pray with great joy. But let's juxtapose that with what he says in the rest of it. Being confident of this, that he will begin a good work in you, will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He'll finish the work that he started, right? But then he goes on. It is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Paul's literally saying, I believe that joy is possible whether or not I am dealing with what I'm currently dealing with, which is I'm in chains for defending the gospel. I've done everything right and I'm still in chains. Listen to me very carefully. Some of you walk in obedience, take a risk, do what you think God has called you to do, and then it doesn't turn out well. And you start to question God's goodness. You start to question whether or not You can really trust God in the midst of it because you did it the way he wanted you to and it didn't turn out well. And Paul is saying, even when you do it exactly the way God has called you to, you can experience joy, but you also may not get the outcome you were looking for. But here's where Paul, I think, reveals something about joy that has been proven over the last 20 years from social scientists. Again, I love it when science finally catches up with the Bible. Science, social science has finally started to lay this out, and you've seen this come out in a few different research projects recently, but here's, I think, an incredibly important truth that Paul's laying out. Our capacity for joy is directly correlated to our capacity for sadness and grief. We live in a culture that has no appreciation for sadness and grief. And if you're sad, if you're depressed, if you're down, fix it. Get an immediate fix for it. There's no, there's no benefit of sadness or grief. Fix it. Mitigate how difficult it could be. Get yourself out of it as quickly as possible and do whatever it takes to do that. There is no appreciation for sadness and grief. And yet, here's what social scientists are finally figuring out. And here's what scripture's been teaching for a long, 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 long time. Your joy is directly dependent on your willingness and ability to sit in grief and struggle through that pain and that sadness. One of my reasons, I, Pixar is an interesting film company, has put out some really interesting stuff. But if you haven't watched it yet, go watch Inside Out. Inside Out is an incredibly well-framed presentation on this subject matter because what happens in Inside Out is that sadness, the character sadness is dismissed, is dismissed, is dismissed, and joy tries to take over over and over again. And what they've done is because of the social science on this, they reveal in that film, until sadness has the right to take priority, joy is never possible. But when sadness finally gets to have her say, joy is able to have her voice again. Our capacity for joy is directly connected to our capacity to experience sadness and grief. And when we are shoving it down, avoiding it, no tears, guys don't cry, I don't need to feel this way, other people are experiencing so much worse than I am, I shouldn't feel down about this, I shouldn't be sad about this. Whatever you're gonna do to overcome 
to mitigate your sadness, I'm simply telling you this. You are also diminishing your capacity to experience joy when you're not willing to sit in the struggle and the sadness and the grief that life and its experiences should naturally bring us. Do I recognize that dysfunction is an epidemic that needs to be dealt with? Do I recognize that there are limits on what I'm saying and we need to handle that differently? Do I understand that medication should have a role in some of these conversations? Absolutely. But just because you have exceptions to the rule doesn't mean you get to ignore the rule. Don't miss this. Just because you have exceptions that you can point out doesn't mean you get to override or ignore the rule. God has designed us to operate a certain way. We cannot lose sight of that. We cannot lose sight of that. This truth, for some of you, you can stop listening to anything else that I say because you need to hear that today. You need to hear that right now the reason why you're not experiencing joy is because you haven't given yourself the right to grieve. As Ben talked about last week, trusting that God will shape that, right? He'll, he'll, he'll frame that for us. But to grieve and to sit in the sadness and the brokenness and the pain, you've been taught there's no place for that. You've been taught that, that if you're an adult, you shouldn't get, deal with that. There's no place for grief. No place for sadness. Social science and scripture says otherwise. Scripture's been saying it for a lot longer. I love Phil Bianzi on this. He says this, everywhere a greater joy is preceded by a greater suffering. Everywhere that you experience greater joy in your life, it's come out of a deeper suffering. The author of Hebrews frames it this way about Jesus. It says, Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Can we, can we embrace this about the gospel, about what Christ offers us? Jesus is so committed to our ultimate joy that he was willing to plunge himself into the greatest depths of suffering himself for us. Does God care if you're joyful? Absolutely. Does he want you to experience joy? Absolutely. How do you know that? Because he sent Jesus to dive into the deepest, darkest parts of pain and sorrow so that you could experience it. And then we walk around acting like, well, I don't know. Is it really that important? Or we don't experience it and we don't realize it's because we've not given ourselves permission to wrestle with the difficult realities of life. I love Paul kind of picks up on this when it not, not just about who Jesus is and what he's done, which is incredibly important, but then how does that apply to us? In Philippians 3, he says it this way, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Here's the beauty of joy for us. The gospel empowers us to run our race for the joy that is set before us rather than the fear that comes behind us. For many of us, we have become so reactionary in life. Our impulsive decisions, our way of coping with life is simply to diminish fear and anxiety. And the way that gospel shapes joy is it says, here's the deal. You don't have to do life by simply looking in the rearview mirror, by simply obsessed with all of the pain and the heartbreak. You have the power to break free from that and run towards something rather than simply away from something. 
That's the joy that's been provided for us. That's the opportunity that has been afforded to us. The question is, will we embrace it? Will we lean into it? Because here's a couple of questions and then we'll close this out. What are the greatest obstacles to your experience of joy right now? What are the things that are getting in the way of you experiencing joy? For some of you, it truly is you've not given yourself permission to grieve and to lament and be sad. For others of you, you're walking in a defiant path, questioning the goodness of God, questioning whether he is actually capable of offering to this, and that has kept you from ever experiencing the joy that he wants for you. Because perpetual brokenness in the way that we do life will never give us the joy we're looking for. But what's the greatest obstacle to you experiencing joy right now? Second question, how might a lack of joy be impacting your strength in this season? This is a question that I've had to wrestle with probably, I don't know, 20 times. I don't have strength. I feel like I'm at the end of it emotionally, psychologically. How is it possible that your lack of joy is actually diminishing your strength in the things that you're being called to do? whether it be as a dad, as a wife, as a spouse, at your job, in your ministry calling, how is it possible that your lack of joy is actually diminishing your strength? A third question, what does choosing joy look like for you right now? What does it look like for you to choose joy? Because oftentimes joy is simply the counterintuitive choice that we have to make. What would it look like for you to choose joy in your current circumstances? Who is God? What is he doing in the face of this? Paul kind of, uh, there's this, there's a phrase, I'm not, I, I apologize, I'm, I'm an old geezer on this stuff, but there's this interesting terminology, right? Relationship goals, right? You see a couple who's got a really cool relationship, you say, that's, I want, I want those are my relationship goals. I want to have a relationship like that. When I think, I want to be this mature, I'm not, I probably won't be this side of eternity, but here's my relationship goal, my, my relationship to joy and my relationship to emotions goals. Here it is. Paul says in this, as he's looking towards his own death, he says this, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I'm facing my death. I'm going to be executed. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. He's running towards something and he's recognizing his own demise, but he's finding joy and he's finding stability in the face of that opposition because he knows what's in front of him. That's how the gospel shapes joy and any other emotion we deal with. So what is the next step for you? We said, we go back to the beginning. For jealousy, jealousy at its core is not about another person. It's about my lack of appreciation for what God has given me and my animosity towards God because of it. Anger shows up when we deal with all kinds of things in our lives, but because we don't own it and don't recognize it as a secondary emotion, it, we use it to, for protection. And if we're willing to go underneath, God starts to give us the power to deal with it. Shame, God declares us righteous because of what Christ has accomplished for us, regardless of the past, our past sins. Anxiety, control, connection, certainty is something that we're always in pursuit of. How do we need to let go of that to pursue what God has given us? Grief, as Ben talked about it last week, is an appropriate God-given response to losing something valuable. It's a necessary step of healing. 
It's so necessary for us to experience joy. So here's a life hack, right? Here's a life hack. It's not going to be on the screen, but here's your life hack for what's next. The first place to start when you're asking questions about joy, and I would say when you feel depleted emotionally, psychologically, or otherwise, the life hack for you is this. How is it that you're looking for your affirmation, your security, and your identity? Your affirmation, your security, and your identity. Your sense of feeling good about yourself, your identity in establishing who you are, and your sense of security about the future, is it being found anywhere else than in God's love and his grace in your life? Because if you're looking for it anywhere else, it will diminish your joy. It will strip you of your joy. So the simple question for me is, what's your next step? What's your next step? What is your next step in either allowing the gospel to shape your anger, your anxiety, your jealousy, your shame, your grief, and maybe even your joy? What's your next step? Because as we walk through these series... If we're not constantly coming back to this question of what's your next step, then we're not doing what we're collectively committing ourselves to, which is continuing to pursue the heart of God and being willing to step out of my comfort zone, step out of what's known, where my security oftentimes gets found apart from God, what's familiar to me, stepping outside of that and saying, what's my next step? God, thank you for today. Thank you for this reminder that you made us because of overflowing joy in the first place, that you are full of joy, that you desire that we would be full of joy. And we know that there are things that get in the way of that. There are difficulties and brokenness and circumstances beyond our control. There are times where we take good things like a career or like achievement, or like approval, and we make them into ultimate things, and we, we worship those things to try to get ultimate satisfaction. And while those things can satisfy for a season, they can't completely satisfy, and that well always runs dry. But you give us living water, Jesus, where if we have our identity in you, we will never thirst spiritually and God and I just pray that we would reset we would reset and refocus our hearts on the person and work of your son Jesus and then regardless of our circumstances that we would be full of joy that our dependence on things going well or our dependence on our career or achievement or approval will lessen and our dependence on you will grow larger and that we will be more at peace and we will have a deeper joy available to us right now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.